Welcome to the first episode of the Codex West podcast. My name is Jacob. I'll be your host today, and uh, I am joined by Mark Cuevlo. Say hi, Mark. Hi, how are you guys doing? And Johnny Peglino. Hey, what's up, man? Um, so today we're going to be covering four segments. Uh, the first is going to be kind of a personal segment, a little get to know us, uh, since none of you have ever heard our voices before or listened to us or have any reason to. Um, the second is going to be a media segment. Uh, today we're going to talk about games, but uh, in the future we're going to. This is kind of going to cover film, music, any any kind of art media. Um, third segment is going to be politics. Uh, we're kind of these these two guys especially are pretty political minds, so we're going to be covering quite a bit of that, uh, just current events and maybe even some retrospectives. Uh, and then the last uh, segment is always going to be discussion or some kind of like free talk or philosophy discussion. Um, so today for our personal segment, uh, I kind of want to introduce us to the viewers. Um, so I want us all to tell like a brief personal anecdote, maybe a funny little story about how we all met or got to know each other. Uh, Mark, why don't you start us off? Oh, okay. So I've known Johnny since we were like, what, 12 or 13? I mean, we weren't exactly friends at first, but then Johnny and I know... It didn't take long. Oh yeah, it didn't take very long. It didn't, yeah, exactly. But then Johnny and I know each other best originally from when we played in our, uh, our, our embarrassingly emo... Uh, high school band, that which was uh, which we played in for most of our high school. Uh, if, there was nothing embarrassing it, yeah. about Johnny and the Dyslexicons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then this came from high school was the name of it. Oh my god! It just it. <laughs> it's, I'm not, it said I, what it was. It, exactly. <laughs> we did and come then from on high top school. of that, like I gotta say, every now and then I go back and I listen to emo music, and you know, to be embarrassed by liking that stuff is just because you don't understand how really good it was. <laughs> 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 That's really what it is, you know? Uh, Got to be confident in it, man. It's great. No, absolutely. So we've known each other for a long time. Then uh, we were roommates in New York during some of yes. our wilder years. I would yeah, say. they I would were crazy. Say, yeah, absolutely nuts. But yeah, we've been friends for like over a decade. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah, it's awesome. And now uh, we're going to go to Amsterdam. Oh, the dream is weeks. live. The dream is live. The dream is live. Mark has just finished uh, law school yep. and he took his bar and he didn't pass. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I'm not, see, now he's I'm going back psyched. for another semester. I'm getting so psyched out. Every time I talk about it, you make me feel like, what if I didn't? But no, I'm almost, I'm almost certain. <laughs> Sowing the seeds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to introduce it to me early, you know? Like, uh -huh. make me more but, comfortable uh, with it. Right, but we're excited mm -hmm. uh, to go to Europe. I'm going to Europe for, well, I leave in like three days. And uh, I'm going to uh, Barcelona and then Venice, which I'm very excited about because I'm going to the Venice Film Festival. I got all my tickets lined up. I'm seeing the new Alexander Payne movie. The new um, Darren Aronofsky. Oh yeah, mother horror movie, oh, mother. I'm, yeah, dude, I'm so stoked about that movie. Obviously, I mean, I love horror. Oh, movies. totally. You know what I, I didn't realize is that um, he's dating Jennifer Lawrence. Oh really? Yeah, oh, and like I love the that. movie stars Javier Bardem yeah. as her husband. So it's sort of like the most like stand in dish, like stand in ish he's ever been oh, that's in terms funny. of like I don't know. To me, it's gonna be interesting to see him like have like a legitimate muse. I guess, like, Natalie Portman was the same way, but, like... Yeah, he but, like, I mean, her, I this think. is, like, there's a particular investment in the story, you know what I mean? Like, even, uh -huh. if it's, even if it's not how he wrote it, it'll be cool to see how he directs it, because, like, you can't help but, like, be influenced by that, you know? Did he not write it, though? I mean, he... Oh, no, I'm saying that, stuff. like, if he wrote it, it may have been written 
absent any intention of Jennifer Lawrence even being in the movie, right? You might have started the idea. Oh, like, I see what you I'm mean. talking about the fact that if he's like with Jennifer Lawrence at, while they were making the movie, that will absolutely have it even like a you know an unconscious subconscious effect on his directing. Totally. It would be an interesting way to watch the movie. Yeah, that was a really funny story about how you met Johnny. (laughs) (laughs) I remember, this is funny, I do remember, Johnny always tells this story, and I don't remember the exact instance, but Johnny always tells a story about how, like, we had some raucous political conversation about the Iraq War when we were like, oh, yeah. freshmen in high school. You told me this story a bunch. And you tell me you no, it's like, true. Yeah, it's all of knowledge. Yeah. He was like fully was informed. Like, I didn't know anybody could have a different political opinion. You well, know? Was Mark like, was the first leftist I ever met. <laughs> and uh, he was very dirty too, so uh, <laughs> he had a lot of filth on him. Yeah, yeah, he didn't I brush did. his teeth. <laughs> oh, fuck you. <laughs> so I'll uh, I'll go ahead and go uh, Johnny I mean Johnny and I are cousins, so he's literally known me since birth he's he's got about four years on me so that's kind of a boring story I, unless he was like actually present for my birthing I, I don't think that was the case though no i don't really remember my first memory of you i i remember a picture of you and like a i don't really remember my first memory of you well i know i have a first memory that if i <laughs> that's your first memory. well it, in his defense i'm like a pretty unremarkable human being so <laughs> i don't really blame him for not i'm so Surprise, he I know remembers that, that I the memory is there. <laughs> but um, anyway, I just remember this picture of Jacob, like with his little cheesy cheeks in a ball pit, and uh, he was like four years old, and that's my gonna be my stand-in first memory of him. No, He's never fair. really outgrown the ball pit. No, but <laughs> one does not like thin down. You have the to ball connect pit, to like... your roots, you know, like go back to it once in a while. I'm deep in the ball right. pit at least <laughs> once a month. I go to the local yeah. Chuck E. Cheese. I've been banned from several. <laughs> My first memory of Mark, though, is pretty. Uh, it's a, a much better story. So uh, oh this was goodness. in, I think I was uh, maybe thirteen or fourteen. I was in eighth grade, and obviously Johnny and Mark had been friends for a while at this point. Um, so Mark was good enough friends with Johnny that he attended my uh, eighth grade talent show. Oh my god! Yeah, dude, in that which, was so in awesome. which my talent was eating a sandwich while dressed in a, like a karate gi and dancing to the Mortal Kombat theme song. So at the end of my performance, uh, I run off the stage and Mark greets me. And this is, keep in mind, I'm like a demure 13 year old. And this is like one of the first times I've ever met Mark. He hugs me while the crowd is like exploding in applause all around, hugs me deeply, picks me up and goes, we're going to get so much pussy. <laughs> like he was in any way involved in the performance. Like he included him. Like I was just merely by being in contact with me. We were yes. going to be neck deep in pussy. Oh so that was God. that was yeah, my first mark dude, memory yeah that's that's a really good one i i have not it's so funny i have never heard you tell me that before that's really I don't funny remember. i probably i remember we thinking it was called uh, blood for oil blood. Was oh yeah we came up we came up with that it was called blood for oil it was performance art oh man it was amazing no no no. i actually got to give jacob props on this there that is probably one of the most surreal experiences i've ever had is watching it's hard to explain over a podcast because it's so visceral but there was yeah i see it in the theater what don't worry it's on youtube it's off broadway (laughs) 
very but, far off Broadway. <laughs> but so funny, what's so funny is that he comes out and he starts eating the sandwich and dancing around to the Mortal, Ke- the, the Mortal Kombat theme, back, uh, theme song. And what you realize is that it's going to take him like a lot longer to eat that sandwich than he initially noticed it would. Yeah, and, and that so, everyone is comfortable with. And, the song's and, like six minutes long. It was, it was amazing because then it w- there would be these waves of applause because he comes out, people applaud, they realize how funny it is. Everybody laughs, everybody claps, thinking he's just gonna like kind of stop at some point. And then all no, the no. all the laughing and all the applause would die out. It would be this awkward silence. Watching Jacob up there eating a sandwich while dancing. To completion. Yeah, exactly. To full completion of this <laughs> sandwich. And then about ten seconds later, there would be another wave of chuckles that would grow into laughter and applause, and then kind of fit. it was like watching a John Cage piece. It was, <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Very memorable. So yeah, but, and then uh, yeah. <laughs> Johnny, do you have any like specific memories of like meeting Mark or? I mean, I like to tell the political story just because it was really funny. <laughs> we were like debating like I think Mark was like sort of a truther. I can't remember. <laughs> oh, hey. oh dude, oh dude, yeah, me at like fifteen or fourteen, definitely. <laughs> like, I mean, like, I'm not gonna like not any specific oh, no. truths, no, just dude. like truth in general. <laughs> listen, listen, this was all new to me. The internet was available. I didn't know what I was talking about. But oh yeah, yeah. was I was I was like yeah. The but goddamn, were you opinionated? Yeah, exactly. They were making <laughs> money off the insurance, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> that's good but it was just i guess it was funny because um we all just like at that age you like basically just have your parents viewpoint but like you don't you're not aware of how deeply entrenched like your parents uh perspective is and so like i just when we i talked with mark it was so like mind-blowing that someone could be so stupid Like a belligerent <laughs> stupid, a willful, like, not a willful like, ignorance, is, but a willful no, stupidity. Like a masquerading ignoramus. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Fast friends, these two. Yeah, exactly, man. Oh, that's, uh, Keep in mind, I was like, Bush is our savior. Yeah. <laughs> I miss conservative Johnny, so wrapped up in like yeah. global suffering yeah, now. There's a, yeah, there's <laughs> such a fucking bleeding heart. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think uh, we should uh, get to the next segment. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> before we about yeah, before we're gonna like ruin, <laughs> ruin our <laughs> decade-long friendship. I like you guys, but I don't want to go to jail for this. So, <laughs> um, so for the media segment, we're obviously we're going to be talking about games, as I mentioned earlier. Um, specifically, we're going to be reviewing a game. But before we get into that, I just kind of want to get a general idea and give the listeners a general idea of like what your relationship with games and gaming are. Um, Mark, we'll start with you because I think that you're like the least gamerish. Of oh the three. yeah, totally. I mean, like um, they're pretty, you know like any any young male my age i was like all about zelda and n64 when i was a kid you know like i have the all those childhood experiences with video games right um but the thing is that it it hasn't been something that how about this once in a while i'll find a game that i really get interested in for some period of time i'll finish it and then it'll be another like two years before i play something else but um i absolutely understand why people can get so into it it's just one of those things I, i guess i always it's like a time Thing. So there's like a part of me that always feels weird sure. sitting down to play a video game. 
But then at the same time, I watch you and Johnny and I'm like, oh my God, those guys get so much joy out of just like taking a couple hours to get really invested in something outside of themselves instead of like reading more infuriating political <laughs> commentary, you know, sure. or something like that. So I'm always kind of jealous of people who can play video games. That's something that I always think about. And whenever Johnny or you recommends me something that's like easily accessible or something I get my hands on, I'm always like interested to get involved in it, you know? Cool. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And uh, Johnny, what about you? Um, I would, I would classify classify myself as a gamer. I know that's sort of like a weird, like a kind of dumb, like really no, ambiguous totally. term. But, but like, there's like, like I was at the Best Buy buying like um my like RGB mechanical keyboard, and like the guy was like, "Are you a gamer?" And it was like the first time I like, <laughs> it was the first time I like Are you was face to face. What is this? I'm in Park City, Utah. <laughs> But yeah, but yeah, I thought it was like kind of off-putting too. But like it was the first time I came like face to face with that identity. Sure, <laughs> it's like you you play games enough for it to be a thing about you. Yeah, it's like I'm buying a keyboard specifically for gaming. I guess I game. Like, I wouldn't <laughs> be getting this. <laughs> I otherwise. do game, sir. But do you game at me, sir? <laughs> but um, yeah. So I I guess my like relationship with games is I'm mostly fascinated with the many ways that people can engage with games i think it's um like you can have a single player rpg and like you're asking a different set of questions and if you're like training for an esport which um, they all still fundamentally like revolve around the same systems of interaction but um you're asking completely different sets of questions which to me is fascinating like you in some sense do that with other mediums uh or media but um gaming specifically doesn't it i think because it's like this latent art form Mm -hmm. that doesn't have like immense like academic cultures built around certain interpretations of it like you could be a historian you're gonna read a book differently than if you're like reading a book in english class right? right um but with gaming we we're not because it's so new and because it generally doesn't attract the kind of like academic seriousness that like other Even like media film, that have been around yeah. yeah but film has had like you know a lot like maybe only like it's only been around for like 150 years but um it still has that's still like a much more substantial history than like gaming which you know with personal computing was until the 80s anyway and then, yeah so um i'm fascinated with um storytelling in rpgs i'm fascinated Mm -hmm. with interactivity um there's certain games where it seems like puzzle games can be very interesting it's funny that's actually what i play honest to goodness the games that i like the most are generally puzzle games and particularly puzzle games that are built into some narrative right so right like one of the gaming experiences i remember is there's that uh ios game year walk I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but I've it's this like never heard of it. creepy, it's this very creepy kind of scary um, uh, click-through game. I mean, uh, well, when I say click-through, I mean it's, you know, a puzzle game where you walk around a very small area and try and relate different information that you get from different places. And it's, I, the only way to put it is that it's like, it's a horror game without there being something like overtly scary. It's all about just kind of creepiness and aesthetic. And it's, sure, yeah. it's, I mean, it's fantastic. It was really, really great. And so it's funny because what you were saying, Johnny, I thought about the idea that like, you know, 
originally when you would go and you would play something like i don't know pac-man or pong you know really original things you're talking about like pure escapism right it's just about like distracting your brain into something else your brain can do that doesn't have the same substance yeah right? it's like just like a entertainment of table it. tennis with extra steps exactly exactly and and that's not a bad thing that's a good thing right 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 but what's amazing about modern games <clears throat> and what you guys have showed me is that the medium is being used to do things other than just kind of distract your mind right right so Which, some of them are like whole, this entire like holistic like experience or like yeah some of them are like world building yeah, like Last of Us or something that Johnny had showed me. Uh, some, oh yeah, some of, like the like cutscenes from and things like it's a movie, right? Yeah. It's a movie that you yeah. get to play through. That's like you know puts the stakes on you, and I think that that's a really cool right. idea. Um, and so yeah, I think that that's like the transition that's made me more interested in gaming is that it's no longer just about you know kind of like. But to emotions. to be fair though, Mark, it's like that like gaming does take significantly more time oh absolutely for sure yeah yeah especially any story driven game mm-hmm. which is going to be interesting when we talk about this game that this game in particular but yeah for sure. yeah it, that might actually like challenge some of those notions but what about you jacob what um you... personally i think yeah. like the the thing that's most interesting to me about games at this point in my life i was kind of like uh like mark mentioned earlier uh, i grew up with zelda games and like really beautiful story-driven rpgs and that was kind of like what i played for most of my young adult life um or, or and most of my childhood and teenage years too um but in the last like five years or so i think that the competitive aspect of gaming has has really kind of i've taken a shine to it um i played like magic the gathering competitively for several years um I'm now playing like Dota 2, mostly games that involve like competition against other people or sort of like outthinking or outsmarting your opponents. That's kind of what gets me off about games now. Um, the idea that like uh, my like a particular style of play that I'm implementing or like some strategy that I'm implementing is uh, puts me ahead of somebody else. Uh, I just like to prove that I'm better than other people. <laughs> <laughs> but that's like why I got in. Well, I like. Um, <laughs> That's why you got into games to so like you know just like mass <laughs> no no no. I'm but I'm so trying to I'm trying fantastic. to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm trying to reconcile that view with something a little more sympathetic. Whereas like I got into chess because um, the complexity of it was like so beautiful, but it doesn't really like it. I wouldn't have the same draw to if it wasn't a competitive game. Yeah, you know, like there's mm-hmm. something about the complexity has to do with like the um unpredictability of the ver- the unpredictable variable of your opponent. Yeah, yeah, I don't and like so playing like, games against computers. Like there's nothing satisfying yeah. to me about playing against somebody who's entirely predictable. I want to play against somebody who like even if they make a decision that is uh like objectively suboptimal, that decision can in and of itself be like uh it can be off-putting or can throw you off in such a way that like that's that's the brilliance of like gameplay of like interplay with somebody else and that's also that's also interesting because whenever we kind of subjectively uh critique or judge things so like in any other medium where like a participation i mean just very generally like you can't say that one song is better than the other like i'm a better musician than you are or something like that you know what i mean that's that's like a strange statement to make but in a game there's it, it particularly in in a um uh a player versus player game right there's there's a winner, right? And that's an interesting way to like put a, like a full stop at the right, end of exactly. some, uh, some at the at the very like, like, like I'm better you than you. In you this can complicate you can complicate that though. Like we oh, just yeah, watched Ti, oh, right? Okay, yeah, uh, we watched like the biggest 
esports event esports. ever yeah. in terms of uh, prize money. Yeah, it was twenty four million um, for Dota two. Yeah. yeah, it was insane. And it was like five day event. I didn't even I don't know anything about Dota two, and I came away from it want, like starting to play it because I really <laughs> like enjoyed watching the competition. And like no one has won TI the same like no no person has won no, ti twice really right yeah yeah so it's like yeah you have a winner but like just like any sports team like any actual like traditional sport you're like, only the best until the next title oh right. yeah exactly. and also like they're yeah i guess that uh, the game made variables are just like artificial in the sense that like you know you're playing football and a team may not always beat another team but that's because of like some other forces involved in it the kind of random variable in gaming is like the underlying construction right. of it in a way. I th- like I think I understand like a way of the uh, thing. Make, making the thing sense to of that. sure. Yeah, the thing to um, like keep in mind is that every sport has a time variable, okay, right? Yeah. So like chess, for instance, people think it's like oh, you know, it's like going to be some strategic thing where like only like there's like one person is going to be better than the other person all the time mm-hmm. because. Um, the game sort of like you can take as much time as you want maybe but really like a traditional game has to be played in four hours yeah. and so you're constantly playing against the clock even though it doesn't seem like it and a long form game of chess is completely different than a blitz game that takes place in five minutes for sure um, I bring that point up because time is the variable that like will matter in any sport in sense of like you know the Broncos might win the Super Bowl one year but time passes Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And so there's like oh, multiple I, ways I time will, yeah, there's oh, multiple that's, ways that's in which way time matters in terms of competition. Absolutely. I think is interesting. But um, when it comes to like other types of games, yes. which are, you know, like the time variable might not matter as much. And uh, speaking um, of the time variable, we should uh, probably, for, <laughs> for time constraints, we should probably get into to talking nice about the game that we're going to talk. Move. Yeah, I'm pretty good at this. Uh, <laughs> un- unlike the guy that invented segues. Um, <laughs> uh, so we're going to be doing a live review of one of the top selling new releases on the Steam Marketplace right now. Uh, it just came out, I think, two weeks ago. Um, and that is... End Dr- of July. End of July. Okay. Uh, and that game is Dream Daddy, a dad dating simulator. Um, so on, on its face, obviously that's like kind of an absurd, like comical proposition because <laughs> the game is literally, it's exactly what you think it is. Yeah. Um, the, the premise is you're, you're a father of a, a daughter who's like, um, about to go to college. Like she's in her last year of high school. Her name's Amanda. Um, and you just moved into this cul-de-sac where, um, as, as in many cul-de-sacs in America, all seven of your neighbors are gay single dads. Um, <laughs> So your job is to sort of like navigate the minefield that is both being a single parent and being a gay single dad and find your dream daddy. Um, so I think we've all we've all played through at least one uh, like one full daddy because uh, you, you, you can only you can only choose one per playthrough. Um, yes. And I think we've all got a pretty good idea of like what the games are about. I'm, I'm interested first off in like first impressions. Uh, all right, Johnny, why don't you start us off with the first impressions? Um. So I think um, there's something fascinating about the tone of this game um, because, uh, like, on the face of it, it's, like, uh, objectively hilarious. <laughs> yeah, like, like, there's something really <laughs> funny about everything. Yeah. Right. So um, it's this, like, very, like, interesting tone where um, the entire premise is absurd, like, statistically. <laughs> uh, f- <laughs> I looked it up, f- like... 
four percent of uh, people in America. <laughs> oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> okay, yeah. They, I, <laughs> Are you objectively proving that this game has like an absurdist quality? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> like, you're proving like, objectively and quantitatively that it's surreal. <laughs> you know? I'm just putting the figures out there that <laughs> I don't. The numbers, what are you gonna do? <laughs> So four percent of Americans, which this place, this takes place in California, so it would be like maybe higher. So but, like sixty um, percent uh, then. <laughs> but four percent identify as LGBTQ. So um, the fact that seven gay daddies would be in your cul-de-sac is like just it's like uh, absurd a little bit note here also the distinction between dad and daddy continue johnny yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. that's really important yeah. <laughs> like, so um it's absurd but the game um the game itself the storyline and the um the dialogue is so sincere and it's for sure yeah and and it's small it's like with this like like this like statistically like crazy like blockbustery <laughs> type of like drama that's going on it's like it's still situated in this like really like basically pedestrian story of like a daughter getting accepted to college and having uh problems with her friends at the end of high school which is like what my sister is going through and i like see similar qualities and like the character the daughter in this game and my own sister and it's it does it's not tone deaf it's like it's almost like too much. It's too real in some ways. Well, yeah, I think it's that like that's pretty, the it's point, almost. In- there's like this great juxtaposition. I'm sorry to interrupt, but there's that juxtaposition no, no. between like the sincerity of that storyline between he and his daughter, and um, and the kind of like dating world that you find yourself in. But not just like not just the dating um, uh, substance, but like the whole way the world w- looks with these bright colors, and you know everybody is really. Um, <laughs> outrageously good looking and and yeah, and have, you, have you noticed they all have really big dicks i literally like, i noticed this look at their pants next time i swear to god <laughs> they're all they're all like they're this is big bulges <laughs> you know it's hysterical it's true but yeah exactly and like there's that but like also the loading screens will have tips and like usually loading, oh, yeah, like tips so and like if you play like bloodborne for instance like the tips will be like relevant to like yeah it'll be like quest. teaching you how to dodge or parry or something yeah but this one will be like grow vegetables in your garden it's cheaper i think <laughs> <laughs> the tips themselves are like tips for your actual life yeah completely unrelated to the game <laughs> right and so like that's that tone where it's like just so making fun of itself but also like the ending is like by all accounts like the uh the animation and the graphics um is like legitimately beautiful with like this like twilight sunset that's like graduation uh, like party a pink and ro- yeah it's yeah. like it's like this like i was actually like like as moved as you possibly could be in this type of game <laughs> at the end yeah so like i did a little like um research into understanding what like like who is behind this and so what I found is, like, it's published by uh, Game Grumps, which is, like, a YouTube channel that's, like, like by all accounts, like, popular. Like, there's over 3 billion views collectively. And they basically just, like, sit down and, like, play games and, like, like basically They do, like, let's plays. Over. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, like, I listened to some of it, and, like, it's, like, completely, like, wholesome, cheesy humor while, like, sometimes going to, like, you know, like, like like Not a pg-13 yeah. yeah 
So I thought, you know, it's like, okay, I get kind of where the humor's coming from, but they, they actually just published the game. Um, it's two people who created this game, um, and I, uh, it's Vernon Shaw and Lighten Gray. And I was just like, they did like an interview with the guard or Hollywood Reporter. Sorry, the, the Guardian. <laughs> no, but the Guardian actually did an article. No shit. On the, yeah, oh, okay, yeah. fantastic. No, oh, I'm that's like, great. Yeah. that's hysterical. Vulture did. It's just like all of these like actual news outlets were like doing articles oh, on ended, this game. That's it, why I said it, yeah. Independently, before I had looked it up or anything, you had told me about it, and then it popped up in an independent article on my Facebook feed. Like from from oh, you really? know, an organization yeah. like the Guardian, they were like you know Dream Daddy rewrites what gaming is you know clickbait stuff. Yeah. yeah, and so I was like just kind of interested in like if it was the sincere was the sincerity like a meme itself or was um, it like the more real part of the game? And so I found this quote from uh, Light and Gray. And she says, as a queer woman, making content for the LGBT community is really important to me. When we started, I don't think we really intended this to be a queer game. <laughs> I don't know how not. But <laughs> the, genesis, <laughs> the, the, the genesis of the idea for me was just about dads dating other dads. The more that we worked on it, the more we saw the opportunity to tell a story for this community that could be really important. There's so little queer content now that's just lighthearted and fun and silly and showcases a really honest relationship. I think part of the goal for this was for it to be for everyone. And uh, also I, in this I think article, it succeeded talk, largely. I, that's the kind of question I want to talk about because it came. The idea actually came from this thing called DILFs of Instagram, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> which is like where the idea of the dad book comes from. Yeah. So like it, at, at a certain point in the <laughs> oh game, you God. get like access to the dad book and all of the seven dads are on dad book and you can like message. Oh, and you have to say what you're, you're into. You know what yeah, I mean? Oh, like, yeah. yeah. You can choose like a, a grilling or like uh, wearing Birkenstocks with socks or <laughs> yeah. like being the best dad ever. Like these are your your like selection of interests. Yeah, I mean, I remember right. uh, what turns you on in the first one is like, you know, big old daddy muscles or something yeah. like that. Like, <laughs> Netflix and grill. Yeah, Netflix and yeah, grill. Yeah. I chose Netflix and grill. <laughs> like, and so, yeah, I guess the question that Jacob, like, I know has, like, opinions about that I wanted to ask is, like, um, so I understand the point they're trying to make about, like, having, like, a game that is, like, lighthearted, that, like, because that is, like, like, sincerity, like, is lighthearted when it comes to, like, w when you're affectionate to somebody. Yeah, totally. And the like, real world isn't, like, uh, like, sincerity doesn't have to have this sort of, like, macabre, like, grim sort of... Oh, that's so uh, true, yeah. Right. Good way yeah. to So, yeah. but, like, because it, like... The game itself is so meta. Like, <laughs> the theme song to the game is, like, Dream. completely I would, aware of itself. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, Daddy. I would play the game for its music alone. Go yeah, the soundtrack listen. is actually, yeah. like, but pretty also, nice. But also, go and listen to the mix. Yeah. If you listen to the theme song and you listen to that kick and that snare, oh, my God. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> the production the, is... It's mwah. Mwah. No, it's fantastic. It, but I, I guess, I like, it. the question I want to say is, like... um is the fact that it's so aware of its gayness and it's like absurdity like um does that belie what they're trying to do or is it like actually a good like um representative demonstration of like what good queer gaming can be um i don't i feel like uh, i feel like it wasn't like having played through it like i don't the characters are really easy to they're so well written that it's easy to like sort of project yourself onto them and like how you would interact with them in a in a real world situation regardless of whether or not you're a gay person like 
I'm not a gay person, but like I enjoy seducing daddies. You know, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> there's it's nothing gay the about that. Guy. There's nothing. Yeah, it's right. Not just exactly. The next guy. Yeah. Well, you're gaming them. <laughs> right. I'm gay. I'm a gay. But that's what I mean. Is like you're uh, like. That's like I, that's actually like the question I'm kind of asking too. Is like there's this like um so the game works is like you take a date. You're like on a date, and like there are multiple times in the date where you get to like make like choices, um, or like dialogue choices, options, right? Or so like, you, yeah, yeah, you have like a dialogue wheel, and you choose on the dialogue wheel what you're gonna do. And um, at they the can, end of the date, you get ranked basically yeah. on like the choices that you made. And so there's like these interesting questions about like because it's a dating simulator, it's like one like are you being like like kind of uh, instructed or like is there a sense the game is telling you that like dates are games and like being your authentic self is less important than like getting the better rank that's a really good point yeah because like the the dialogue options are really they sort of like they're diverse enough to where you can really project yourself onto your own character or you can just like lie and tell them what they want to hear yeah exactly like what, right. what you think will get the, the best most, reaction i think that i found that the most fun when i was playing it is that that idea that you can kind of become your character or you can make the decision to try and convince some daddy to go home with you i mean i think that that's like um i think that it's very cool it makes it a lot of fun in that way it's actually very playable. And then I guess like the more philosophical question I want to ask is there like the game itself is designed in a way where there's like teleologically like a best date scenario. Right. And like so the game's like metaphysics sort of dictate that there is a best date whereas like I don't know if I would agree with that. And I, so that's where like design can kind of like that might you may find that interesting or you may find that disingenuous and i think the I other don't know where i stand the other interesting thing about the game like to that point is that there is i think for like every sort of like uh person at like archetypical personality there's probably a daddy for you where you can be your most genuine <laughs> self as genuine as like a dialogue wheel like can possibly be uh and that is that that's your dream daddy i think that's the because whole thing. <laughs> Here's another well. Here's another question I have is that okay? So like this the game conversation like, emulates the game. You realize that? Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the question. Uh, here's another question I have that I want to ask you guys is that okay? So like the game I think like um, clues us into like the fact that we may not like there's going to be like a best version of a date and we may not like naturally fit with that daddy. And so it allows you to like go on two dates with every daddy. Yeah. Before right? you close in, you, you don't have yeah. to seal the deal with the daddy. So like, yeah. And that way it's sort of like a concession that like that, you know, the, the perfect date, you weren't able to accomplish it. Maybe that's just not your guy. But, um, at some point, like there's a, there's a thing with like a lot of different types of games where you can have different endings. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's like this um behavior where like people need to be completionists and get every ending yeah the, right the game definitely plays on that too yeah and so like the, not only is there a different ending with every daddy but you can have multiple endings with the same daddy. with the same daddy there's like an ideal quote-unquote ending with each daddy or like a you know like a bad ending you see this you see this pretty frequently right. in games that are like designed around having multiple endings where you can get like you can play perfect and get the best ending but like none of those games are dating simulators or like <laughs> yeah. sort of like a really self-aware like uh, I, I feel like this is like a cultural moment this game by itself it could be i mean because it's i, I haven't played a lot of dating similar simulators to be honest um, but the assumptions that this game makes about completionism and about um, just being queer 
I think are really interesting. I like I'm trying to like connect the fact that like um, there's this fantasy like in life where it's like the one who got away or like what could have happened if I committed to that person. Yeah. Um, that like um, you get to explore. We that. all want to be like fantastical completionists in our own lives, right? And this game offers you a chance to do that. And it offers it in a context that is already completely fantastical, which is that there would be seven gay dads <laughs> on the same cul-de-sac. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's it's super interesting. I I I am unconvinced of the act is like the 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 supposed activism of the developers and saying like this is to like yeah produce, I don't really buy like, into that so much I don't yeah, think it's I think like going like, to be a, a huge like uh, touchstone for gay people be, I mean because the game like like uh, Layton said the, the game is it feels like it's built around like playability and accessibility um, not to say that like the characters being gay is necessarily unimportant but I don't think it's like some like message or you know it's going to end up being like this big sort of uh like rallying cry for for queer people to to sort of like reference to oh yeah but i do think it's just like a really uh, good game in its own right i don't think that dream daddy is going to change the lgbt community in some sense you know what i mean not fundamentally yeah no exactly no no no, and i don't but is it like a positive oh uh, like expression absolutely and i I don't mean to diminish what i think that that i do in fact think that it is um there is absolutely a, a positive message about being able to take a subject that so often is either cast as a caricature or cast as an overly dramatic representation. Yeah, or even like tragic. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, perfect, right? Or even tragic, right? I think that there's something really fantastic about the queer community feeling good enough about itself, secure enough nowadays at least eight hours. yeah i don't need to talk about no it. you know what that's totally right but, and then for a game like yeah. this to develop that is not so heavy-handed about queerness but actually makes makes queerness feel like really normal and really yeah fun. and fun and, yeah. yeah and then what yeah. you do is that you like i mean there was i was shocked when one of the first decisions that you make in the game is whether your former spouse that passed Oh yeah, was, was a woman or a, a man? Yeah, right. And it's funny because I I, I sat there and I thought about it actually because I was like I didn't know if this was going to play into the storyline later, and so totally. I made it, I I made it that yeah. it was a woman and that he was like changing over, right? And that might be me projecting <laughs> because I'm like you know a straight man, right? And that I wanted to like you know project some of myself into it. And I remember answering the questions on Dad Book and being like, "Do I answer this the way you know? Am I trying to get the daddy I want, or am I trying right. to the daddy or, or you am need, I trying to, yeah, the da- <laughs> or the daddy I need? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. But so I think that there's I think that the real thing um, that was so effective to me about playing it, you know, what I've only played so you know so much of it, not very much. I haven't finished it. But um, I might. And the thing is that uh, <laughs> the, uh, the the thing that stood out to me was how kind of casually it took the subject, right? Yeah, it, absolutely. It, it really wasn't about gayness. And I think that that's like, that's something that um, was kind of needed in a certain way. I think that's needed in like many different media is kind of like a a more, yeah, dude, it's normal, kind of blasé, uh, you know, totally, yeah. on the LGBT uh, experience. And so I think that this game was, um, uh, it was a good sign in that direction. Do I think it's something monumental? No, not yet. Not like that. You know what I mean? And it doesn't have to be. 
It's just no, like, totally. it, like the whole point of all of this, um, of being uh, kind of accepted into the fold of, you know, standard American culture is the fact that it doesn't always need to be about gayness. Right. And right. so I think it almost feels like really a great in that way. Yeah, like a foil to something like uh, that's been on my mind a lot in a movie that I've seen a few times, like Moonlight or like Blue is the Warmest Color. Like yeah. this this game feels like a foil to that where like yeah. these issues don't have to be like super dramatic. And like it's obviously it's important for people to feel represented in media, but it doesn't always have to be like, a, look at me like this is so like serious. It, or, like, or that or that just the idea is representation is not representation of, like, just that identity. It's representation exactly. in, like, a more fundamental sense of, yeah, dude, gay people are just, like, regular people. Like, you can make a dating simulator that's about gay dads living on a cul-de-sac. And it's not, like, any different than, you know, some, like, Japanese, like, you know, like, straight dating simulator or something like Anime that. Anime titties simulator, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But so the thing is that um, I thought that was the coolest thing you know, for me was that it wasn't um, uh, it wasn't really about the gayness of the game. It was Not almost that all, it, yeah. it like it took itself um, seriously enough to feel sincere without going overboard, and it made you feel as if like gay daddies living in this cul-de-sac are just like a part of their normal everyday existence. <laughs> just a part of like Americana. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was very Americana despite being super gay, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that's what we're all looking for. I don't know how Americana <laughs> it was. It's like a Norman Rockwell painting. When I think of this game, I don't think of wheat fields and... <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's a good place to, to close off for just for, for time constraints. I think we could probably talk about this for a lot longer, but... Um, just yeah, for I mean, the sake but... of our, our listenership, let's we can end it there. For anybody who's <laughs> interested in playing the game, um, it's available on the Steam Marketplace. I think it's like fourteen ninety nine. It's not expensive, and it's definitely worth a pickup if you're at all interested. I would I would recommend this to pretty much anybody, new gamers, like people that are kind of looking for a gaming experience outside of what they would normally. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, yeah I think it's. I, I actually had a really great time. I don't play video games. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> it really is awesome. Yeah. All right, so uh, we're going to go ahead and move into the politics section. It is completely veer in an entirely different direction. <laughs> it's not really a good segue for this one. Um, we're going to – Johnny actually kind of put us on this this subject this week. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, an article that Michael Lewis published for Van- Vanity Fair. Um, and Michael Lewis, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is a financial analyst and a journalist. He wrote uh, The Big Short and Moneyball, um, a lot of other books that have been like extremely incisive looks into the financial sector and like phenomenon that occur, like very s- sort of specific instances of of kind of what's going on that that end up painting yeah. a bigger picture of like underlying corruption or um, like mismanagement. So. Um, this article in particular is about Trump's potentially catastrophic mismanagement of the Department of Energy, which until reading this article, I didn't understand the scope of at all. Um, I'm pretty uninvolved and like apathetic about politics in the political atmosphere. But uh, even I thought this article was like pretty necessary, maybe like especially necessary for the layman or like people like me that are just uh, typically pretty apathetic. Um like not to be an alarmist, but this has like actual literal nuclear implications. Um, but I'm gonna go hey. ahead. And make, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm gonna go ahead and pass this one off to Johnny because he's he's a lot more uh, well versed in, in sort of the political atmosphere. Um, we've all got the article in front of us, so we're gonna be talking over it. But I'm gonna let Johnny take lead on this one. Yeah, I wanted to um, talk about this because um, for two reasons. One, um, I listen. To basically all of the political podcasts <laughs> that yeah, are out there yeah. and 
I think only Trumpcast really mentioned this. I haven't heard anyone talk about it, and to me, it's like insane. Like, it's you can be upset at things that are happening in terms of like, um, especially in the wake of uh, Charlottesville, uh, uh, which is still like, ongoing as this podcast yeah, is being recorded. Yeah, yeah. Um, like the, the the bigotry is one thing. And it's very important. This isn't to detract from that. But um, a lot of us, too, are concerned about management. Um, it's not just the symbols, which are very important, but it's also, like, legitimately <laughs> the infrastructure well, that is being mismanaged and, and in deep I, ways. And what I can say is that a whole lot of our, you know, completely legitimate concerns on a, a sociopolitical level are um, sometimes they can end up overshadowing some of the more pragmatic and sometimes, you know, like fundamentally disinteresting things, right? Sure. But they yeah, have right. these incredibly grand implications. And what's amazing is that they get hidden in the background of everything. And I think that yeah, it's, you know, no one sharing Michael Lewis's Vanity Fair article uh, on yeah, Facebook. Exactly. But like the, right. I'm seeing, you know, I've, I found out about Charlottesville yeah. almost or Charlottesville almost or, immediately. Yeah, after, on your like, CNN app began. or something like that, right? Yeah. Like it yeah. popped <laughs> up on your phone. And the thing is that um, every day that government operates, there are opportunities for catastrophic failure. I mean, that's that's right. one thing that to like keep in mind when you think about particularly the Trump administration and particularly in the context of the article that we're talking about is yeah. that every time that government operates, there is always an opportunity for something terrible to go on. It is incredibly large and incredibly complicated. And sometimes that gets overshadowed by obviously the disgusting bigotry. But like there, sometimes we need to take a moment to just kind of look at this for in isolation for a moment for sure yeah, yeah. i agree that's a good and point. Uh, the second thing i wanted to uh why i want to talk about this article is because north korea oh my god is <laughs> in the so news funny. a lot and, that in perspective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah think about this like uh the president likes to talk about you know like he likes to get up and like do some improv like uh slam poetry in terms of fire <laughs> and fury <laughs> but like when it comes to the actual like ways in which you deal with this crisis he is like failing us all in spectacular ways and um this article is evidence of that why don't you give because, us a quick like summary yeah listen i got i got the whole summary of this article we're going to go through it so um i do suggest you read it and i'm sure we'll say that afterwards too but we're going to try and give the best rundown of like the most important points in this but um so the department of energy is um it's a 30 billion dollar government agency that's how much money they um manage and it has 110,000 employees and the main mission what 15 billion of that dollars goes to is just to oversee our own nuclear arsenal um and to monitor and deter nuclear threats across the world um the, yeah, the it's department just of like energy so funny. rick perry <laughs> you know yeah right yeah. So we'll, we'll get to the whole story oh, yeah, um there is this like misconception and it's a deep so basically what happens is um when uh the day after the election this happened with bush this happened with obama um you immediately send people to go um to the various different departments in the government you send like 30 to 50 people that's what's usually sent for the doe and um the previous administration has already instructed the department to like basically give a rundown of what that department yeah, does. Yeah, they've got like a big fat dossier that like gives a, a 
a pretty holistic understanding of like what yeah they prepare is. for like a year for this it's yeah. like insanity it's not just something they whip up the day before it's like it's these are these departments are so fundamental to our security that like they're it's essential that they like depart information to the next administration in a very like clear and a uh, holistic way um and so basically what happens is that like obama had instructed about like a year and a half that the, before the uh, election that the doe start compiling all this stuff and they wait the day after the election no one comes um yeah a week after no one comes as in zero um, yeah yeah <laughs> as, as in literally and, nobody right it it takes i believe um it takes t- an entire two weeks for um trump not just to send like a whole team but just to send five people um to it's like a landing team he sends to the department who is headed by a, like a, um, a coke lobbyist um which is funny because you have to assume that what he thought the department of energy does if he's sending um like an oil lobbyist is that they have something to do they have like a similar mission as the epa which is just like besides like corner uh, cases in the budget, just absolutely not true. Yeah, I mean it's just <laughs> demonstratively false. You know what I mean? Right. It's incredible. So, yeah. So um, when this guy, his name's like uh, Pyle, I, Mr. Pyle. I forget what his first name is, but um, Gilbert. he uh, Sorry, he comes in good. like a month after, right? And uh, he just like doesn't even like he just asks a couple questions. He doesn't even take notes on like what the department does. And they remember they have like all these presentations set up for this like to like tell like, binders anybody. on binders of information right. and like also let's be clear like you have to have like um like security clearance for a lot of the information that happens in uh, <laughs> uh yeah this that, that, like relevant to the department of energy because like you're dealing with nuclear <laughs> nuclear arsenal and there's a lot like a lot of what they do is like they're preventing and mitigating attacks against like our arsenal what's in, what's and also going? like it's, it's maintenance too i, I just want to point out yeah. really quick that like our nuclear stockpile like it doesn't just sit there and it's okay to just like collect dust it has to be maintained actively not because not necessarily because the devices are just gonna like prime to yeah, randomly yeah, yeah. explode exactly, exactly. but there's like they produce waste like there's there's millions of pounds of nuclear waste that's still like waiting to be disposed and then on top of that dude like some of those you know the proverbial red buttons were built in 1955 so i think that sometimes you have to go and update the big like you know game show buzzer (laughs) that has you know everyone like you know sometimes you have to make sure that button works you know update that button ios 10.33 exactly Right. right And so, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it, it, and it's not just that. I mean, I really want to reiterate, they deal with nuclear deterrence globally. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, uh, like they're responsible for every person who inspects nuclear arsenals across the world. We do all international training, um, and so like if we are not like managing our budget correctly which you'll see we are not <laughs> that um, it can it has internet it's not just about american safety it's just about like just n- no one is safe um so anyway let me go back so pile um you've maybe heard of um some of the things that have happened to scientists in this administration where um they feel the need to like put things in public record because a lot of um the like appointed staff that are coming in are like scaring people into like admitting that they're like climate science believers and that they're going to be punished um 
the Department of Energy, here's some questions that uh, these people were supposed to answer. Can you provide a list of all Department of Energy employees or contractors who have attended any interagency working group on the social cost of carbon meetings? Oh my God, yeah. Can you provide a list of department employees or contractors who attended any of the conference of the parties under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in the last five years? So this is like a very like McCarthyistic kind of um, questioning. It's like very clear, like knowing the politics of the administration that are coming, which mind you, like under Bush and under Obama. So this is like a bipartisan. It's usually a nonpartisan thing that the by necessity, the mission. Yeah. yeah, the mission of the Department of Energy is like traditionally been nonpartisan because the politics of like the Democratic Party and Republican Party are relevant to um, like m- like mutually assured destruction. Anything that has to do with nuclear so deterrence, it's just like it's like fundamentally like stronger than like any of the differences of our like political parties. Like it's just like there's no political stance you can really take within like the realm of like acceptable politics that have any relevance on nuclear deterrence. Yeah. Um, so like the fact that these questions are being asked is alarming because one, it demonstrates a clear misunderstanding of what the Department of Energy does. And to the fact, it doesn't even matter if it demonstrates a misunderstanding, the fact that you are, like, asking people whether they attended scientific conferences. Yeah, the implication being, like, people who believe in climate change are disposable. Because w- really what, what all of who, this is... People is who like, are I mean, open, who are available to... Um, <laughs> to understand who are available to science. reading the science. Yeah. Ex- like, I'm just gonna, right. I'm gonna point something out, though. Like, I, I re- like, the really terrifying thing about this information is the mismanagement. I, I swear to God, because the thing is, like, I, I absolutely understand that we can be all be furious about the, you know, implications on climate change that these questions, you know, show. We've always been aware of that. The really distressing thing is that these kinds of misman, this complete lack of understanding of how complicated the government is, not just how complicated it is, but what the fuck it does. Right. Right. And that's the dangerous thing. And I really like I think that that is the most important thing to draw away from that. It's not about the. It's not about that. They ask about climate science for sure, dude. But four years. Uh, this is the way I can put it. Four years isn't going to help us very much in cli- climate. You know what I mean? Like making drastic yeah. changes even now is not like like sufficient. That's actually a quote from this article. Right it's now like now and making changes in four years is not that much of a difference as ensuring that we don't accidentally set off nuclear weapons. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like something that fundamental. Yeah, totally. Right? That's actually an article here where it's like, you know, climate science, like an official in a, the, um, I don't know if you'd actually use the word official, but like a staff member at the DOE who's unappointed was like, climate science, I understand, that's manana, but this is like, if we don't do this right, like, you know, there are like severe consequences if we're not managing our nuclear arsenal correctly. So let me just like keep going basically. Um, I'm going to give some sort of examples in which, like, this is clearly being mismanaged. So, um, basically, like, no one in the DOE um, is told if they're fired or they're staying, right? Except for maybe, like, Ernest Moniz, who is, like, the head. Who, like, so, like, under Obama, like, a theoretical physicist from MIT was the head. And under Trump, Rick Perry, who famously forgot that he was going to slash he was going to completely dismantle the Department of Energy in his uh, 2012 debate. Uh, dude, I thought he was – Was – is now the head. You mean the guy so, from Dancing with the Stars? The guy yeah, – <laughs> in our reality TV administration, yeah. it only makes sense to put Rick Perry in head of our nuclear arsenal. 
Um, so here's the thing that like stood out to me the most is that um, so the chief financial officer, who's overseeing thirty billion dollar operation, right? When um, Obama took over, the remain the guy who was a CFO under Bush stayed for a year and a half in order to. Um, Educate like, the new staff to transition. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's like right, an incredibly new, yeah. long transitionary. Period. Right. It was yeah. right. Right. No one even calls this the guy under Obama. No one even calls him. He doesn't know if he's there or not. And so the, <laughs> he just leaves without <laughs> explaining to anyone how the money works of the Department For a of Energy, thirty billion dollar Department it, of Right. Money. That. <laughs> so. Um, to me, that's alarming. It's alarming what I just said that Rick Perry is running it, especially because Rick Perry, um, he's ceremonial in a way that Ernest Monez wasn't. Like, Ernest Monez was like, um, I don't know, there was like this interview he did on Colbert when Colbert was still interviewing politicians on The Late Show. But it was like he was trying to explain why the Iran deal was very good. And he was like using science to explain why, like, Iran can't really, like, be too se- – like, they can't have, like, secret – um, nuclear facilities because, like, of the way the that physics, nuclear material yeah, the way works. The physics works. Right. And, and so it's like, yeah, he, how, how calming it is to, like, have, like, a head of a department that manages nuclear um, material around the world tell you in, like, terms that you can believe or at least research competently that, like, the Iran deal is a good thing and that well, it was he was just involved. Sort of, like, he was, apology yeah. deal. And he was involved in the negotiation. Right, right now, exactly, imagine right. And he Rick, loves the DOE. Rick Perry talking oh. to the Ayatollah. Well, he would. Do you know what I mean? Way. I'm it's, just it's like cl- serious. Right, like, it's what because all, what Rick Perry does right now, the, the, the contrast is important because Rick Perry's ceremonial. Mm-hmm. He's just going around oh, no, like I I totally cool, like that. really insignificant programs, doing like social media tours, like taking pictures and mm-hmm. selfies and shit. Um, that's alarming. Trump has only installed one of the top 10 people needed at the DOE. By this time, in both Bush and Obama, seven people were installed, and that one person he installed is Rick Perry. Well, Duh. I mean, hey, but that's the, that's the fault <laughs> Essential of the, to the operation. That's the fault of the right. obstructionist Democrats. I, I just right. like, you know what I mean? Like, It's like, the fault like, of our black president. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. um, this was, a, I, this is sort of like an off tangent, but I was just, I was thinking about like how history works, like when you read history and like, history boils down to like the most like obvious hard-hitting truths it's like america went to war with the nazis because they're evil like it's it's like yeah i guess you can like nuance it but like ultimately like that's just what it boils down to right like to me like all this like white nationalism you see it's just like history is just going to be boiled down to america elected a black man and everyone freaked out (laughs) yeah i mean that's like a very simple way of constructing the narrative right yeah right it's like why are these people and why is like uh like a a birther or president is it like i guess you can like get really like nuanced with the analysis and i like to too but like ultimately it's like the reduction like the reductionism can be really poignant when you just when you distill it exactly. down to like that sort of horrific sentence yeah yeah that's what it seems like to me anyway sorry it just it crossed my mind i thought i'd say it but no, totally. um yeah totally. so um Anyway, so Michael Lewis ends up visiting the DOE, and he starts talking to people. It's, like, completely understaffed, and he talks to lots of people who are, like, who are, who are staffed through both administrations. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to read a couple quotes, like, throughout the segment, but here's the first one I wanted to read. So in the article, he goes, Meanwhile, inside the DOE building, people claiming to be from the Trump administration appear willy-nilly 
unannounced and unintroduced to the career people. Uh, quote, there's a mysterious kind of chain from the Trump loyalists who have shown up inside DOE to the White House, unquote, says a career civil servant. That's how decisions like the budget seem to get made. Oh, Not yeah. by Perry. The woman who ran the Obama Department's Energy Policy Analysis Unit recently received a call from DOE staff telling her that her office was now occupied by Eric Trump's brother-in-law. Why? No one knew. (laughs) Quote, yes, you can notice the difference, unquote, says one young career civil servant in response to the obvious question. Quote, there's a lack of professionalism. They're not very polite. Maybe they've never worked in an office or government setting. It's not hostility so much as a real sense of concern with sharing information with career employees. Because of that lack of communication, nothing is being done. All policy questions remain unanswered, unquote. That last sentence to me is the most damning. Because if you have a department that doesn't have any policy goals to enact, it's sitting still. And what you don't want is the department in charge of your nuclear arsenal to be still. And also, right? Like, like, yeah, I mean, and we keep talking about the nuclear arsenal, but you, Johnny, were the one that enlightened me to this before I even read the article. We they also deal with all of the power grids. You know what I mean? Like, oh, okay, yeah. no, it's true. Let me let me. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna get coming? into that. Okay, yeah. I almost sure. I almost like well, it's coming. About it's that the next because exactly. of just how yeah. insane yeah. the whole nuclear arsenal is. Yeah, so, exactly. um, let me let me get into that yeah, because. Yeah, this is what so, I think, and this the funny thing is, I think this is kind of what everybody thinks of when they think of the Department of Energy is like a climate science, just because that's the spin that like the Republican administration has put on it. Like that's mm-hmm. how they're sort of framing the Department of Energy as being unnecessary, but they're also in charge of like the entire nation's power. <laughs> yeah, the other <laughs> like issue, the stuff you use we'll every day. is very scary. So, um, Ernest Monez, I just love this guy because. Um, he had this ability to like find people in um, the private sector and bring them in. And one of the guys that he does is this guy, John McWilliams, who is in the departments. I think it started in the 50s. So 80, what is it, 70 years? There's 70 year history. Um, it was the first ever chief risk officer of the department. And um, so, like, uh, Michael Lewis, he sits down with him. He like basically interviews this guy as if he was like some like Republican hotshot, like a like you know staff. And he was like, just tell me the five biggest risks. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, I can't really talk about the first risk because it would require you to have secret clearance. clearance. Yeah, but let me just like go over things I can talk about. And some of the things is that um, like they found they a driver carrying lots of like highly like <laughs> um dangerous material was pulled over for drunk driving oh um th- there was an order oh. <laughs> there was an order for plutonium that was made um to be sent to a lab that had a wrong decimal point and fedex sent over a sample that was so big <laughs> that the scientists freaked out because it could blow up america <laughs> um, and then they nuclear. sent it back via yeah, fedex they sent it back via fedex wait um, wait, th- wait no that's real yeah they yeah, turned oh, they, oh as in God. they wow. they looked at the they looked at the plutonium sample looked at the driver and said <laughs> you gotta take that one back yeah you gotta go nuclear weapons nuclear like weapons have fallen off of planes before oh yeah um, and they didn't detonate thanks to um, safety mechanisms that were created by Department of Energy research that um, 
was funded by um like money that is under threat from like the new budget right. oh like they're cutting in a particular area and that yeah. funding generally went to this kind of more generalized research yeah it would be like if you worked at a gun factory and then uh and and (laughs) the guy who was in charge of the gun factory was like "Uh, i think we should uh maybe not care so much about the trigger part yeah exactly like (laughs) right can it just just fire consistently yeah i get it yeah um he describes a scenario in which like all right so um a lot of there's like barrels of nuclear waste that are um held inside of these like um caverns and new mexican salt beds and um believe it or not kitty litter is used to season the barrels um so that they don't spread waste (laughs) but someone uh so like when it was like written down to somebody that what they need is inorganic kitty litter the person (laughs) it was like smudged writing and the guy who's responsible for this put n organic kitty litter so like any type of organic kitty litter (laughs) and the waste and that one mistake um, cost the bed to be shut down for three years. Oh my and god! Five hundred million dollars was lost in order to clean this bed. So that's just like these and this are is sorts this of is things. like things that happen yeah. while the DOE is funded and competent, <laughs> run by nuclear scientists. Right. right. Um, yeah. No, and totally. so like, so those are the those are like simple things. Those are just like, like things that can happen they're not like major risks they're just like well these things happen um the major thing that he talks about is north korea um see what i'm hearing a lot of people talking like um political commentary right now is like okay like this article was written before um we learned that like uh north korea can miniaturize um the nuclear material and put it on a airhead which is clearly a yeah. major step for their nuclear program. Right. Like, one of the main... This was written before that, but, like, what I liked about this article is it talked about um, the fact that, like, that doesn't even matter so much because of nuclear deterrence. The thing is, like, there's going to be a... There's a worse... There's a, there's a case scenario. There's a threshold in which, like, the United States will have to act. Yeah. But there is... There is an act that lives just under that threshold right in which case like we will not act despite the horror of the action itself like um in syria they use chemical weapons yeah chemical weapons against their own people but like we that wasn't enough for us to act right right and so and so this guy john mcwilliams says that if north korea korea was to hit seoul with sarin gas on these missiles that that would probably be an action that was horrific but not so horrific to start a nuclear war and that's what's scary well it's is that i i have to say though like you have to really think about the implications of and i mean i know you know i'm not explaining to you but i'm pointing out that the implications of all-out nuclear war are not just those for the places that get bombed you know what i mean like the the implications of of um, some major nuclear strike on North Korea, just us bombing North Korea, would be immense for economies like Japan. Because yeah, for bordering for bordering nations, yeah. or like the fallout potential. Well, Japan would get in that 
That oh no, be, no, no! I'm yeah. not just talking about like uh, I'm not just talking about politically. I'm you know I'm not I'm talking environmentally, but not like oh it's gonna you know destroy all the environment. I mean that you know we don't exactly know what the wind has to be like to ensure that nuclear fallout doesn't blow farther than we expect it to, and all of those kinds of things. Like um, the the the, impl- the you know nuclear weapons have only been set off in live combat twice, right? And the idea that we would take the chance of doing it again for the first time in so long for anything other than, you know, the complete annihilation of a major city in East Asia, right, makes at least a little bit of sense because the opening of the nuclear venue is a box that has been closed for a very long time. But that's what I, I mean. That's the point that he's making, and that I'm iterating. Oh no, I mean societally um, as well. Yeah, go on. That's fine. Oh, the point I'm making is that, like, um, because it's such a Pandora's box. Yeah. That if um, there was any less, if there was like a chemical attack against Seoul, then oh, that's what I was defending. It would be so much. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what I was defending. Yeah, the ambiguity of the course of action is increased. Like, if it's nuclear, duh, we just like go for it. Like, that's just like an ally. Like, China would probably be okay with us hitting Korea. Like, they would have no, and they know that. Like, all like these people are smart, but if their real mission is to hurt South Korea, their ways of doing that. That the Department of Energy is responsible for overseeing and <laughs> monitoring and Energy. deterring. <laughs> that would like they're like you know it's like South Korea is like in our hands in terms of like this department, and that's like <laughs> it's yeah. important that you know like it's overseen correctly because like even for American safety like it's ambiguous whether we would go nuclear if they go sarin. Yeah. Right, yeah. and so if we're not on like you know if we're not just completely competent with our um over seeing yeah, our oversight yeah, yeah. that yeah of our oversight then it's an issue even if it's not nuclear and so that's what he was saying when he was like the number two risk that um that he was mitigating was north korea uh, it wasn't just because of nuclear so anyway I, I think that adds another dimension that most people aren't talking about which is like yes we can worry about our own safety blah 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 but like ultimately like they can attack in ways that are going to be more ambiguous to our safety because they're not going to be just like the full like crank it to 11 oh i now i actually fully understand your point and that's very interesting yeah like like a new way of looking at this is that even if even if north korea were to do something that we would fundamentally find to be severe enough that we would normatively expect some side of like some sort of you know immense response like a nuclear uh, a nuclear response uh, mm-hmm. that if you don't understand what uh, what those kind of barometers are then like or but even better not that you understand it but that the people controlling the agency don't understand the barometers your safety itself may be an issue because nuclear deterrence may not be enough to protect Los Angeles from getting hit by a nuclear weapon in the case of mismanagement of that situation I absolutely understand and that makes a yeah. lot of sense. And yeah. mismanagement is like essentially what um, one of the biggest risks end up being because, um, so he 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 sets up the idea like he ends up saying like specifically that project management is a risk, um, which is like what should worry us because obviously if the department is being mismanaged, then the projects under that department are like are, also are being all mismanaged. An incredible risk, yeah. 
Right. So um, he talks. This this will bring about bring us back to our electrical grid conversation. In which case, he talks about like so he sets up this topic of project management with the scenario in which in 2013 a sniper took out 17 transformers that were feeder stations to Apple and Google, and they explain that you would have to have incredibly precise and premeditated planning and knowledge for to be able to take this out. Um, and but there are people that like was, that. There are people like that, and it was like a risk that they had. They didn't even know that was a risk. Yeah, like right? just completely like unmitigated, unplanned yeah. for. Like, they, and then now, and even scary. now that they know that, like, how do you anticipate that? Is there any way that exactly. you can expect to act fast? Like, right. And uh, if it wasn't for like, um, just like a like a system of gener- like gener- power generators that um, were designed for a different purpose, that would have been seriously colossal to our economy um and it's also worth noting that there is no national electrical grid it's like a patchwork of local systems and the oversight of it because it's a patchwork of local systems is insane so much so that like actual electrical companies are brought into meetings at the doe given day-long passes that give them security clearance and their minds are blown but um in terms of this project management issue i just wanted to read a couple quotes sort of just like end the segment just yeah go for it this is a good way to tie us off because michael lewis along with like being like insightful and like finding really interesting and important stories is also just like a good kind of like he has like a crime caper kind of like um jargon or like you know just like that's how he writes the tone like, is very much yeah, like, yeah, like, like murder yeah, like the writes, department of energy yeah. murder mystery yeah, yeah exactly he writes in a way that's not like sensationalistic but like brings you to the drama it's like deeper right. and deeper and deeper you go you know what i mean like it, that's exactly yeah, I love it. Yeah. he yeah. doesn't he doesn't I would recommend yeah, he... flash boys for this type of um like really to get in like this story to like, just like yeah. yeah it's like it's just like you find it's like myst- it's like mystery writing that isn't like uh cheeky you know i don't know anyway so um i'm just gonna read a couple yeah go for quotes it. from the article so um we were talking about like how like Jacob was mentioning like how do you, you don't even like prepare for those risks because when you're managing something that's so monumentally important and expansive like you have to have like an intense imagination right and this is what he talks about he says project management is not just project management project management is all the less detectable systemic risks some of the things any incoming president should worry about are fast moving natural disasters terrorist attacks but most are not. Most are like bombs with very long fuses that, in the distant future, when the fuse reaches the bomb, might or might not explode. It is delaying repairs to a tunnel filled with lethal waste until one day it collapses. It is the aging workforce of the DOE, which is no longer attracting young people as it once did, that one day loses track of a nuclear bomb. It is the seeding of a technical and scientific leadership to China. It is the innovation that never occurs and the knowledge that is never created because you have seized to lay the groundwork for it. It is what you never learned that might have saved you. And here is where the Trump administration's willful ignorance plays a role. If your ambition is to maximize short-term gains without regard to the long-term cost, you are better off not knowing those costs. If you want to preserve your personal immunity to the hard problems, it's better never to really understand those problems. There is a downside to knowledge. It makes life messier. It makes it a bit more difficult for a person who wishes to shrink the world to a worldview. 
Anyway, I Jesus. think it's brilliant writing. Yeah, that's, a, that's a really <laughs> that's great way to fantastic. tie it off. Yeah, yeah that's, that's um, And so it sort of just shows how, um, I mean, because, like, imagination takes knowledge, right? Like, you have to, like, in order to, like, imagine the risks that are possible to the system, well, you have to have the knowledge of what the system is. That's a, in order to base that imagination of off of, and yeah, right, good. and any risk anal like anal analyst needs to know the system very well. And if you're not putting people in there, like this guy John McWilliams, he doesn't work there anymore. They don't have a risk. None of the people, none of the right people now. that know anything about the DOE work there anymore, basically. So now we have exactly. an administration that not only has has denied the tools given to them to understand exactly what's going on and how important uh, the the Department of Energy is. Not only have they denied those tools, they are actively like covering their ease and going na 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 while they're trying to be explained. And now the people that are there to explain it, that can explain it, that know it best, are gone. Yeah. Yeah, and no one is asking them except an intrepid reporter. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, it's it's kind of it's an interesting way. Like it, leaving this segment is kind of hard just because it's it's pretty ambiguous. I well, mean, the article doesn't really give us yeah. like a, there's no happy ending to this one. Like yeah, I mean, it's it, uh, it's, it's tough to say where we go. It's probably because it's fake news. That's <laughs> not, yeah, <it's, laughs> sorry. I, I just I, on second thought. Yeah. Yeah. I just I, I just had to take that moment. But yeah. um, so we'll go ahead and uh, we're going to throw the link to that article in the show notes. I would recommend and any of our listeners. It's a little bit longer. Um, I'd, I'd say it's like bordering on 20 pages. But uh, as Johnny and Mark were saying, Michael Lewis is an incredible writer. It's worth a read. Um, even if you don't want to be terrified, you should probably understand what's going on. Um, if only if only so that like your nameless horror can now finally have a name. Uh, <laughs> nice. Fantastic. So anyways, uh, we're, we're going to go ahead and move on to our discussion and philosophy segment. This one's going to be a little bit more lighthearted and uh, something that we all have kind of equal footing on um, and something that all of our listeners will as well. Um, we want to talk about cooking, uh, specifically whether or not uh, cooking could be considered an art. And that's a kind of like a, a sort of like a broad based question but we'll try to kind of narrow down what we mean by art and i think personally we'll all sort of like describe what that means to us and why cooking can or cannot be art um so johnny i'm gonna let you take the lead on this one again and kind of uh give us like your sort of framework for for give us just like your, your sort of basic argument and understanding of of why it may or may not be art yeah so um i want to preface this topic by like the easy cop-out to this is like um in certain scenarios, like cooking can be an art. In sure, scenarios. yeah. It's not bl- like that's like it's such an obvious way to get out of this question that is so uninteresting that like we're just gonna throw that away. Yeah, yeah and it, like or, or we're gonna accept it. That, yeah, we're yeah. not gonna like it's not gonna be like what we arrive at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like um, it, as performance art or like any other kind of like sort of right. uh, in the way that like haute cuisine is like it's sort of like haughty kind of thing like that sort of like pretentiousness surrounding the question we're going to sort of dismiss that for the sake of this discussion well yeah because i i think um there's something um what's interesting about this question is that eating is (laughs) necessary that's that's actually yeah exactly of course right so it's not like um you know you can be like oh it's like um a piece of advertisement art and like you can kind of skirt the question, but like, is it advertising to a blind man? No, but <laughs> food—it's like you can't actually like go like there hasn't been a human yet who's able to live without sustenance, and so cooking isn't just about um, taste; it's about sustenance. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Nutrient um, value. Yeah. There's there's always going to be decisions that you make 
in terms of a nutrition level that are irrelevant to taste or your tasting sense. Um, and to me, that's more fundamentally interesting because um, you could like to bring that premise back, like you could just like make decisions about like, you know, you're trying to hit your macros or like you need to make sure you like um, <laughs> yeah. get vitamin C. And so that's how you make decisions. But like, I think on a, like even on a sustenance level, you can talk about um, artistic decisions, right? Yeah. Like um, because art has a normativity to it, right? So like you can want like, is it artistic to like eat something um, that's hot? Like, I don't know if that's really related to taste or something that makes you feel full. Is that an artistic experience? Yeah. Because it could be. I mean, it's like a um, personal relationship or interpretation of the food you're eating, but in a, I think in an entirely different way than, like, traditional art appreciation. But continue. Right. And I think that the, but, yeah, um, yeah. oh, and then um, another question I kind of wanted to pose to the group is that um, – what I'm thinking in the ways in which, like, usually if you're going to ask this question, if cooking is an art, right, you're going to be like, okay, like, for instance, for me, like, when I went to Moto, like, and, like, I ate a ham sandwich that looked exactly like a cigar that was ashed. Uh, yeah, right? of course, of course. Like, yeah. to me, it's like, it, that's so clearly, like, you're not eating it for the taste, you're eating it for the gastronomy. Yeah. Right, like, there's, a, there's an artistic predilection there. Right, mm -hmm. that, like, you you aren't asking fundamental questions about like what does that experience say like what how how does that experience um typify the moto brand okay. using a so, wait, I, so yeah, like totally. usually if like you know it's like um like music is like like uncontroversially considered an art right mm -hmm. but it's co-opted co to make theme songs for you know like jingles or jingle, for, yeah. like yeah so when you think of like i'm loving it like obviously, you know, music has been co-opted. The the aesthetics of music been co-opted to like um, typify the brand of McDonald's. But isn't also the like um, like the McDonald's like cheeseburger like a Big Mac? Isn't that also the taste sort of that of typifying of the brand? Right, because like to actually get the exact taste of a Big Mac, it's like basically you have to have the machinery. And the means of production that and the knowledge, McDonald's yeah, have. that is unique yeah, to like McDonald's. You, that arcane that knowledge home, that is unique to McDonald's, right? But like, doesn't the Big Mac taste the same across the country? I've had Big Macs everywhere; they yeah. all taste the same to me. Yeah. And the fact that McDonald's is set on the Big Mac tasting that same way, and so that means that they have to systematize and regularize and you know, like formally distribute the means of making that big mac um that means that like clearly an artistic vision is set because uh, i don't i don't necessarily know if i would agree that it's an artistic vision is the thing like um but it's it's they would be less concerned about it tasting the same unless they were they did like the, their brand um the fact that they're so concerned about their brand staying the same across means that they have a sense in which the taste re like relates and, to the brand, and, and, but what and to I, me, I don't think you can make that connection unless it's an aesthetic. But what connection. I can, what I can say is that expression alone is different from like artistic consideration. Do you know what I mean? So when when McDonald's makes you the Big Mac, of course they are trying to have the Big Mac taste the same across it, right? And the idea is that they're presenting you some like I, I understand your terminology of aesthetic, right? But at the same time, 
there is also a difference between you know the Nike swoosh is a beautiful piece of of trademark, right? I mean, it, it right. conveys so much, but is that exactly? I mean, maybe when it was first drawn, that was an artistic expression, but when Nike uses it, is it somehow like artistic? I'm tra- you know, basically what I'm doing is I'm relating. I guess I think so. Is like, I guess is identification the same like as like aesthetic universality? There we go. Boom. You right, but like back. a certain director has like an aesthetic brand. Why can't a company? Yeah, like, but if like you're a, doing a director, actual marketing, director, you're worried about. A director can, I think branding is we could debate this but I think branding is necessarily uh, yeah, yeah, of like course. an They're, aesthetic consideration yeah, exactly. right and so if you're worried about your taste being the same yeah I'm I'm weary of thinking McDonald's is worried the Big Mac tastes the same across the country because they think it's the best tasting thing I think they want it Oh no! Of course, of course. Well, that's where you're goddamn wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I'm working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's not because it's, they think it's the best burger, but because they think it's important that you mm-hmm. taste the Big Mac Absolutely. the same way as you do in California that you would in uh, like Miami. And what I, can, I guess it's like, like an aesthetic business consideration. Right, which is like also why it's like you know like it, but it's not like art isn't. Imagine if you're so. McDonald's, right? And you're like, okay, like I could have a different brand. Like I, I could have the golden arches because it's easier to like produce the signage in Florida, but mm-hmm. like it's not the same cost. There would be a cheaper oh, no, cost absolutely. to produce signage I, in Nevada yeah. if like our McDonald's just looked like a silver M or something. But like it's important that they have the same signage because it the aesthetic of that signage like signifies the brand and, and, itself and, and, and so that, creates I, I think awareness. What you're saying is more of a question of whether advertisement is art more than whether it's a question of whether food is art right so like what i can say is but this is the way i'm bringing it there's also no totally but but to really bring it back to the main question is that there's a big gulf missing in the middle which is that you cook dinner every night i mean most of us many of us will cook dinner very often for ourselves right and to have it be a question about food i definitely think that there is something to be said about branding having some sort of implication on art generally and that artists in many ways can influence branding in the sense that a brand is looking for some sort of art to bring in or to identify itself right but at the same time if we're actually talking about the medium of food right the medium of taste as you put it right which i actually thought was very useful because so often we think about like whether a chef is an artist whether or not an eater is an audience right and i think that that's mm, like yeah. an important consideration to be made and i think that you know um, it obviously, obviously, if you go to like Fabrican or Noma or whatever, what's that guy? Massimo, uh, Jacob will know, but Jacob and I both cook extensively, but like Jacob, what's the guy? Massimo, whoever owns the, um, the restaurant in Italy. Oh God, I forget his name. Uh, I know exactly who you're yeah, thinking of. I just can't oh my God. put a name to the face. Oh, I can't remember it. I guess what, but, but you you're going to bring it back to the fact that it's, there's a necessity. No, right? no, well, I think, I, no, 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 I, I'm actually I, saying something different. No, no, hold on. Because uh, here's the thing. I'm not just talking about the necessity. I'm talking about the fact that some of the best food you ever taste is the one that's made by whoever made you food when you were a child, right? This right. is not, about, this is not that... about a question. Of, I, I, I absolutely like. I don't want to talk about obviously what you had said at the beginning. Well, you're cutting I, in and out a little bit. Oh yeah. Shit. Um, am I good? It's now? okay. It's it's back okay. on oh, now. I can it's figure okay. it out. Don't worry about it. I'll yeah, yeah. Out in editing. Um, I guess what I was gonna say though is that like the reason why I brought up, um this branding issue it introduces because a situation I, 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 I was the one who like, also art, food well, is clearly art like it, it's you're it's about an aesthetic relationship with 
something else. It's about a personal right. But like, also remember that I I started this whole conversation by saying the necessity of cooking was important, and then I also connected that to the fact that like you can you can um, interpret ways in which like um, taste can be used for branding, and I want to make a I want to synthesize the two points, which is that like um, when you cook for yourself. Like I know when I cook for myself, I have a certain brand, right? Uh, no, like, yeah, I know. I understand what you're saying. Totally, yeah. Right. It's like Jacob has a certain brand. Like Jacob cooks me Indian food. He cooks me Mexican. It's still Jacob to me. And like, just the fact that he is cooking in these like different cuisines, the cu- the cuisines themselves are like irrelevant to um, the Jacob brand, even though the cuisines are like brands in their own right. Mm-hmm. And I can't make sense of um, how I can interpret it as a Mexican dish and a Jacob dish unless I use aesthetics. Because sure. if I don't, then all I'm getting is like, oh, that's a bean. That's pizza, right? <laughs> oh you know what I mean? Right. Like, but I if mean, like, aesthetics like... goes beyond simple identification, I think that's yeah, the... exactly. But it, the the minute I start to dig deeper into like what is he trying to do, then I'm like involved in questions of. Um, aesthetics to me because like I don't know how else you you know like I guess cuisine is cultural right, right. but like but that's it. culture but like a, but... organizes around like um, taste and aesthetics to me no, is and also a, availability. a of, yeah. no, no no I mean I mean to make a point if you want to talk about like how cuisine and culture are interrelated you also need to talk about the availability of particular goods and the development of that cuisine I mean that's a For real sure. thing and so the thing is that like you know Cat guts were everywhere to make violins, at least in many places, right? And particularly once uh-huh. the idea for a violin got somebody got somewhere, they could go kill a cat and make violin strings out of cat guts, right? I'm talking about the right. fact that like one of the reasons that Russian cuisine is so beet heavy is because beets are something that you can grow and pickle. I mean, seriously, like it's and so there is yeah, it, but the availability of I your understand. instruments and does I, that. And make... my my point is that what's different about cooking and some of these other things that we can talk about in the branding sensibility is that is that cooking the action cooking the process is so, particularly in that cultural sense that you were asking about is tied to different things other than just like preference and i think yeah, that that's, that's important true. to be made i mean the yeah. reason that particular cooking is different across the world is not just because oh people in thailand like things spicy right I mean, it's not just an I mean? interpretation exactly. it's like it's necessity again and so like i mean you always hear i i you know it's funny it's like this is yeah it. but also people in thailand had like you know opportunity to try and like eat grass or something. yeah i know that's really stupid but like you still make choices with the things that you have oh like, yeah but then taste is different over different places what I, I mean it's i think it's i think it's um i think that food is more complicated than thinking about it just from the perspective like my answer to the question is food art no some people use food as the medium but no is cooking and art as some action absolutely not it's something so much more fundamental it's not just that it's a necessity it's that it is a remnant of a history. It's in it like yeah. you know what a I mean. A reflection is, of, of the past. It truly is. And the yeah. thing is, like you know, why does history my, is an art? And you know, like uh, I'm Italian. Oh my God, you're both you're both Italian. So the thing is that if you think about why does your family make red sauce, right? It's not because it's something that you can make on Sundays and keep all week because it's so acidic that it will stay over, right? It's because your family has made red sauce for generations. At least mine right. has, 
right? Yeah. So the thing is that food is not just it's not just about the utility, it's not just about preference, all of those things. It is truly like each food culture is a kind of like imprint of its past. And it continues to grow over time. I think that food is I, I don't think that food has to be an art. I don't think it I don't think it should try to be. I think it is something so much more communicative than so many other forms of expression. See, this just might be like an issue where we like, um, where we're negotiating where like aesthetics happen. Oh, which no, to me and it's I'm like not, the, not... the necessity doesn't even like, like. I think that you're talking yes, about necessity. Because, just because it's traditional, talking... does that mean like, like oral traditions of like, you know, like Greek mythology were less relevant because like people need to tell stories? No, absolutely not. And... About how. Like that situate their own like beingness. I don't think. No, so. I like, think they're different. That's all I mean to say. I don't know if they're even different. I, I guess what are. I'm saying is like just because you have like just because like it's necessary to make food to live, it doesn't mean that um it's not aesthetic. Because like when it comes to like like obviously trying to eat a rock is unpalatable, and you can already like use palatability in like your aesthetic jargon right Mm -hmm. so like just because like you have to eat doesn't mean that like um oh and that's actually not it's irrelevant i think okay so wait wait. i'll put it in a different perspective very yeah go ahead mark i uh, um were okay if i were a painter and i was in east asia or i was in western europe during some particular time period when there was not interconnectivity between them would they both have access to things that made blue yeah, indigo is right? incredibly rare. Okay, so my point is that there may be situations in which some place may not be able to make blue, another place may be able to make blue, but generally we have access to the color color spectrum in the places that we're around. Okay? Right. Now Yeah, but you don't need blue to make anything. I understand aesthetic. you don't need it. My point is that everybody had it. Now the thing is that like, for example, something as simple as um, chili peppers only grew in particular areas before we had the ability of, you know, controlled cultivation, right? That constructed a particular food culture that was completely independent of taste. Precisely. Or not, and it, so, well, but so the thing I is, you don't need the range of everything I understand that. to make I something aesthetic. Agree. Like, And this is, what, this is my point, that there is a difference between what we might cons- generally consider art right or generally consider an artistic medium and the histories of cooking as an action right cooking as an action in any particular culture is built out of considerations that people had no control over it right. was and only I, what you could gonna, do with what you had l- let me interrupt you briefly mark because i yeah. think I, I i think that i'm going to totally. kind of like play the mediator here um, I, think <laughs> I don't think Johnny John, and I are repeatedly <laughs> arguing. John, I think that, uh, like, um, to to Johnny's point, the it, it's easier to interpret like uh, cooking as a set of aesthetic decisions when you have access to everything. Like, we're in a culture that where availability yeah, is that's a non issue. The point I'm making, though, no, 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 and I don't think that's the, the the. This is more to the point that like Mark's making that cooking occupies an entirely separate space because that wasn't always the case there was there were for a very long period of time in human history choice wasn't an element that's the point that mark's trying to make but yeah and like there's no other there's no other way like and i think this is what he was trying to bring up with with the availability of blue dye is like sure you don't need the full range of something for it to be an aesthetic decision but 
in some case, cooking was born entirely out of necessity. So because of that, like painting, it was well, never and I necessary. Mean to say av- availability, not just necessity. Right, right, right. Like yeah, what was? I there? think this is all irrelevant. But see, and I think, like, and I the think point I'm trying to make is it's I'm choice. I'm talking about necessity. I'm talking about the specific consideration of that. The histories of food are built out of not necessity but availability, meaning that the isolated pockets of various cuisine are not aesthetic decisions. I mean, yes, there were absolutely like. Why aren't I they though? Because, I mean, because they're like they're decisions that are like. I guess the point. No, like, but what I, I I'm, guess the question is: Is it expressive? I'll ask you that. So when you say aesthetic, when you say yeah, aesthetic, it's just, are you implying so this, I guess, expression? In the sense, um, like, like of of like actual concerted thought about. I I guess like doing. what we're we're like not really in disagreement, except for like. I guess what I'm I'm trying to use this question to drive at a deeper meaning of what aesthetics is, which is like I don't really care if like you say you don't have a choice. Well, you could die. I mean, like as like at some level, like you like if all you can eat is this one thing or not, like you're making a decision. <laughs> I know it seems silly, but let no, me just no, like no. Real, let I'm me bear it out, which you. is I'm that like um, the, you have um, if you're are, you're gonna like make it like I think a lot of people when they think of aesthetics are like is this art? They're thinking of like somebody who has um, the privilege to make something that has no use, and I'm challenging that by means of this question, which is that like cooking you don't have a you have to eat right um. And yeah, I guess at some point you can be like, like I, I said with my, like, you know, when you go to like a fancy restaurant and you're there just for the taste that you're making a choice that's like so deliberately about the aesthetics of cooking that you're not even concerned about yeah, your sustenance. Like we all eat ice cream when, yeah, yeah, when we don't, don't need to eat anymore. <laughs> no we one all eat it. so much when we don't need to eat anymore. But the question, I guess like what I, the point I'm trying to drive is that like ultimately like um, it's like aesthetics could mean more than just like when you're in your privileged position like aesthetics could be as deeply set as like um that this is something i can eat it's within the things that i'm capable of eating and so um i'm making a choice i'm making which is like what ethics is it's like yeah it's like a consideration of choices you can make um, and then aesthetics is something that – the choices that you can make that um, engage your taste. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it seems like if I was in a room and someone told me I can eat this piece of meat and I or I cannot and die, that um, the reason why I'm eating the meat is, is ridiculous. It seems it's, an aesthet- it's necessarily an aesthetic choice because it's something that I am capable of eating that is palatable in my taste, that it, I'm, I'm – I'm, capable of eating yeah but what if the decision um, but what if the de- and and I, I i hate to bring it back to that but what if the decision was between something unpalatable and dying there are so many pe- there are so many um uh, uh uh artifacts that you will find in, right but in like varying, ugliness in, but in varying if cuisines. it's within the realm of palatability it becomes a question of aesthetics like right like ugliness is not necessarily then, palatable also, but it's an aesthetic designation and, and then what i think is right? funny that is that like there's obviously like a biological component to why you can't eat rotten meat for example <laughs> no 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 true no, 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 i, I, no, I, I mean, guess that's what i'm asking though, right? though is like is there like also a biological i, I oh, think what I cooking think that, this question you're at a really really interesting question that's what i'm trying to get at is like like, um, we may think that aesthetics has to deal with, like, pure, like, um, 
rationality or huh. imagination yeah, 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 or something yeah, of the yeah. creative capability. I think this question is so important because of its necessity that um, what we lose in a th- what we lose when we generally talk about aesthetic is that you're making choices, um, but the choices that you're making may be like biologically necessary if you're concerned with yeah. keeping your biology intact. Yeah. Um, and just because something is, you know, I don't know, like, you, I guess you could think you're eating air, but that's not going to be, <laughs> it's yeah, not like, yeah, yeah. Th- is that an aesthetic choice? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> this is going to get crazy, but. <laughs> yeah, I think this is probably. <laughs> yeah, this is going to get really far out. <laughs> this can, yeah, I this... think we did a good discussion. Yeah, for sure. I don't think, I think, I don't think this is a good place to. Art. Johnny thinks food is art. <laughs> that's I think it's, I think it, it, it demonstrates its art in like a really maybe like artificially deep way we could <laughs> we could probably talk about this forever but. yeah okay, yeah that was great <laughs> all right guys well uh we're gonna go ahead and close it off here because we're at about the uh, hour and 45 minute mark uh, <laughs> so uh for for any of our listeners that are still there god help you i have no fucking idea why um <laughs> But uh, we're going to go ahead so and... So we're going to do our recommendations? Yeah, we'll do our recommendations. Uh, just be, before we do that, uh, there's going to be links in the, the show notes whenever we publish this for uh, for Dream Daddy, for the Michael Lewis article, um, for like a place you can buy a length of rope after you listen to the food discussion. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, let's let's go ahead and close this out with um, wh- anything that you guys have, have consumed this week, any media or just anything in general that you'd recommend to the audience that's kind of captured your attention. So um, I'll start. I saw um, I saw Repulsion by Roman Polanski. It was made in 1964. It's this psychological horror movie. It's part of that whole trilogy that's um, uh, The Tenant and Rosemary's Baby and Repulsion that are all what you're like they call the uh, what is it the apartment trilogy. They all take place mm-hmm. in kind of confined spaces, and I was. I was shocked by how um, forward thinking and feminist that movie was. I hate that word. You said it was, it was 64. Yeah. 64. And to think about Roman Polanski as being a person who's had this whole like sordid past, you know, and like, you know, statutory rape charges and all of this stuff to watch a movie that was like, I mean, I mean, fantastically and overtly feminist and like anti, um, uh, uh, machismo was really interesting and to be honest I got it uh, I got it illegally so I can't exactly recommend a place to see it except for where it is available for rent which is which, probably on Filmstruck exa- oh it might be available on Filmstruck or um, your local Blockbuster exactly yeah I had to Blockbuster there's 11 Blockbusters still left one of them has a Twitter and it's amazing I thought you were going to tell me there was one in Park City, Utah which would have been really <laughs> no, funny, was, yeah. no, no, no. We'd be there now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that movie was fantastic. I know I'm very late to the game, but it was really fantastic. I would recommend it to anyone who likes um, who likes the horror genre. All right, cool. Uh, Johnny, anything you got for us? Yeah, I'm reading this book called The Devil's Bargain by Joshua Green. It's um, it's basically a look at uh, Steve Bannon and his influence on the um, Trump candidacy and then uh, election. Um, it's really fucking fascinating but there's also like <laughs> amazing anecdotes about the campaign that are in here um one of my favorite is if you remember chris christie was really uh, at bat for trump um <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this dude. moment when there's this moment in the book that it describes where like everyone's in trump tower watching the election results and they realize they're gonna win <laughs> and like obama 
basically like because Chris Christie and Obama have a relationship because of Hurricane Sandy. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chris Christie called Obama. <laughs> And if you remember, like, Chris Christie was at bat, and then, like, all of a sudden, like, Trump just, like, fucking threw him away. And, like, Joshua Green's account of this is that <laughs> um, basically uh, Christie says to Trump, if you win, he's going to call my phone, and I'll pass it to you. <laughs> Trump flashed a look of annoyance, clearly resenting the intrusion. He was also, his aides knew well, a fanatical germaphobe who would not want Christie's cell phone pressed to his face. <laughs> <laughs> not even for the deep satisfaction of hearing Barack Obama congratulate him on having defeated Clinton. Let's be still fair, on... Chris Christie's kind of gross. Chris Christie, yeah. <laughs> still, still, onlookers were startled when Trump snapped, "Hey, Chris, you know my fucking number. Just give it to the president. I don't want your fucking phone." Chrissy's move was, one witness later recalled, the ultimate mistake. It was one from which he wouldn't recover. <laughs> anyway, the book is full of shit like that. I totally recommend oh it. it just came God, out. Oh, my God. That sounds fantastic. That was great. <laughs> what about you, Jake? Um, so I my my grandmother actually recently published her first book called Beyond the Dance. Um, it's it's c- completely off-tone and unlike anything else that we'll ever recommend on this podcast. It's about... Uh, <laughs> Like her kind of her her journey through like becoming um uh, like a mission choreographer um and it's it's actually like a really beautiful book uh, not not just because of like my personal relationship with my grandmother who I love very much and who I was kind of like um uh, like sort of participated in the process of her creating this book and was like really invested in it personally but um it's just like a it's a really for for people that are uh, sort of interested in like uh, dance and its relationship with like God and the Bible. Um, and for people that are interested in um, kind of just like understanding the nature of surrender and maybe like the mindset of somebody who has completely devoted themselves to God in their lives, um, it's a it's an excellent read. Uh, it's available on Amazon. I'll probably link it in the show notes. Uh, and I, yeah, that's kind of I just finished it and I'm just kind of <laughs> taken aback. Uh, awesome. So yeah, that's all we got for today. Uh, we appreciate you, those of you that are still listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. All right.